A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards, and I'm glad you're with us on the program today. We're going to be talking with Alan Gottlieb, the founder and executive vice president of the Second Amendment Foundation here in just a moment. Uh, You know, the gun rights policy conference put on by the Second Amendment Foundation held this past weekend in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. First one in a couple of years that was conducted in person. Uh, And I am awfully sad that I was not able to make it this year. I will be at the uh, 2023 Gun Rights Policy Conference. But it was a fantastic event. Uh, Hundreds, uh, if not thousands, of attendees. uh, Dozens of great speakers. uh, Leading lights from the uh, world of Second Amendment activism. Uh, And this comes at a really important time. I mean, this is a supercharged moment for the Second Amendment. In the wake of the Bruin decision, the Second Amendment Foundation is filing new lawsuits. It seems like what is on a daily basis uh, taking on uh, existing gun control laws and pushing back against some of the new post-Bruin laws that the blue state governors are putting in place. So let's talk about all of that and more with the founder of the Second Amendment Foundation, Mr. Alan Gottlieb. Take a look and a listen. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the program. It's so good to see you today. Great to be with you, Cam. And again, I am uh, so disappointed that I was not able to make Gun Rights Policy Conference in person this year. But it sounds like it was an absolutely incredible event. Uh, John Petrolino, who's one of the contributors at Bearing Arms, was uh, sharing pictures. He was texting me all weekend long. And uh, I, I was really pleased that John was the uh, awarded the Gun Blogger of the Year at uh, GRPC. So um, what was the what was the theme for this year? What can you tell us about the Second Amendment activists who showed up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area this past weekend? Well, I think the main interests were in two areas. One was what's happening in the courts legally post-Bruin, and the second one was the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, I think those were probably the two areas of most interest, uh, but we went into a lot of new research that's been, uh, you know, done, uh, particularly by some stuff by John Fund, which was was really kind of, not John John Lott, that was really pretty good. John Fund also spoke there, you know, from uh, uh, National View and American Spectator. We we it was just a great conference. Uh, the amount of information was people were on on overload. Uh, the enthusiasm was really great. There were, what surprised me is the number of first time attendees. Close to half the people in the room, even though this was our 37th gun rights policy conference, over half the attendees in the room, or roughly half, have never attended one before. That was good news. A lot of new faces. That is very good news. I, and I'm curious, I, I, how many of those folks were new gun owners as opposed to new Second Amendment activists? Boy, I don't really know for sure, but I'll tell you that uh, there were a number uh, that definitely came up to me that, that, you know, that in the last two years were the first time gun buyers and now, you know, gun owners and want to get involved in the gun rights movement. But there also were also a lot of new activists that weren't really active before that were gun owners that now feel very threatened and turned out. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sad that that's why they're turning out, because they feel like their rights are under attack. But I'm glad that they're showing up because this is how we keep our rights and strong is by getting involved and engaged. Uh, and this is something that the Second Amendment Foundation, I've got to say, Alan, I mean, in full disclosure, I'm on the board of the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, which is SAF's sister organization. But I have to say, I have been so impressed at the amount of lawsuits that SAF is bringing post-Bruin. It seems like every day there is a new legal challenge that's being filed uh, in an attempt to regain our rights. 
Yeah, that's definitely true, Cam. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I didn't realize it, but we had to put a list together for uh, the Attorney General in Illinois for some of our litigation because you know, in discovery, they wanted to know how many lawsuits defending Second Amendment the foundation has actually filed. And I was shocked. We're over 265 lawsuits that we have filed in courts across the country. And we're still counting because we can't, we, we didn't keep track of them. We're still going through old records to try and find some older ones. Um, and of course, uh, post Bruin, it's only been like a little over three months. Uh, and so in, in a little over three months, it's amazing how many lawsuits have been filed, how many lawsuits that were already filed that were sort of stayed or being held pending the decision in Bruin are now moving forward. Uh, it's absolutely uncanny. Uh, the amount of work we're doing, uh, having to apply to motions on all these suits that have been bottled up for so many years now in the courts that, that are now moving is astronomical. Uh, last week alone, Cam, the Second Amendment Foundation filed three new lawsuits. We filed one in California challenging their new law, trying to make it impossible to go to court to challenge you know, gun laws in California. Because if you don't win on every single point or anything gets dismissed or anything, you have to pay the attorney general in California all their legal fees. And the problem with that is, is that you're looking at a million and a half, two million dollars a case. Uh, Second Amendment Foundation, as an example, right now has 14 active cases in California alone that could bankrupt the organization. And not only is the organization legally liable for it, so are all our individual plaintiffs and the law firm itself. And it could be the directors of the foundation, you know, as well, the way the law is written, because it's vague. Then we also filed this week uh, a, a lawsuit challenging the federal government's, you know, ban on 18 to 20 year olds buying handguns at licensed gun stores. We have two West Virginia plaintiffs that are 18 that both have permits to carry concealed firearms. Uh, they can buy a gun, a handgun in West Virginia if they buy it on the street, so to speak, but they can't go into a licensed dealer and go through a background check and, and, and buy a gun. I mean, which makes absolutely no sense. And we, we filed that one. And then we also filed uh, last week a, a, a lawsuit challenging the so-called assault offense ban in the state of Connecticut, where we have uh, two uh, f former uh, corrections officers uh, and as plaintiffs. Uh, and another and another woman whose uh, family has been attacked and, by multiple people and, and, and needs to be able to have, you know, more than just a handgun. One needs needs a little bit more self defense protection based on family history. Uh, we had that one filed in federal court as well. Uh, and 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 that just last week alone. Uh, and of course, this week coming up, there's a chance for another case to be filed. Uh, I think we're something like somewhere around a dozen cases that we have filed post Bruin, not to mention the ones that are already, you know, in, in the courts, we're dealing with 40 or 50 live cases at one time. Wow. I mean, that is incredible. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the cases that you just mentioned, just the three cases that were filed last week, these are critically important issues, you know, particularly, uh, let's talk about the California law, for example, because this seems like it is designed as you say, to prohibit lawsuits challenging the constitutionality of California's gun laws. This, this rule where if if you don't prevail on all of the merits, you have to pay the state's attorney's fees. This this only applies to challenges to California gun control laws, right? Correct. It singles out gun laws only. So you could challenge any other laws on constitutional grounds in California uh, and, you know, and not be required to pay the attorney general's costs. But if it's a gun law, uh, we're, we're, we're singled out. It's not going to hold up in court. We're going to win on this eventually. It's absolutely disgusting, but it's basically to make sure the gun owners don't get their day in court. 
And, uh, it, it, you know, we can't tolerate that because, look, as you know, what starts in California spreads across the country. And there's no doubt that if they get away with it in California, you'll see it in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, you know, Illinois, Washington, Hawaii. I mean, that cadre of those eight or 10 states that have, you know, Democratic controlled legislatures and Democratic controlled governors are going to be pushing it down our throats so they can't be sued. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. And, and meanwhile, we're seeing kind of the 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 East Coast version of that is what starts in New York doesn't stay in New York. You know, these sweeping number of sensitive places that uh, Kathy Hochul put in place. Now we're seeing uh, Hawaii uh, start to replicate those laws. The New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy says, yeah, we're going to do basically the same thing, including the bans on private property. Um you know, this this backlash to the Bruin decision that we're seeing from the left here, this outright refusal to acknowledge a a, a constitutionally protected right, uh, it is shameful and it is disgusting. And I'm so glad to see SAF pushing back at this point. I mean, how do you how do you decide, OK, these are the cases that are going to have priorities because there are so many areas to challenge right now. Is that a struggle to figure out, okay, like, okay, yes, we can devote resources to this. We're going to have to put that one on the back burner for a little bit, but we want to come back to that. How does this work? Yeah, it's it's really tough. And a lot of it also depends upon uh, where you can get plaintiffs, you know, individual plaintiffs withstanding to be able to sue. So sometimes you don't get your first priority done first. It comes in second or third. But in all honesty, by and large, I guess there's four categories, let's put it this way, of, of challenges that we're looking at. Uh, one, of course, was uh, all the cases we currently had on file pre-Bruin that are sort of stayed, you know, or being held waiting the Bruin decision that only to be updated based on, you know, the, the Bruin ruling, uh, which now is, you know, text and history rather than standards of review, so to speak, in the courts. And so those are one block of cases. Another block of cases is cases in the past that we have lost under the old standards of review that now under the new standards of review, you know, we could win. And so we're bringing all of those back. And then we have on top of that, uh, you know, all the cases we wanted to bring, but we're more leery to bring because, you know, of the old standards of review and, and some other court decisions that now we're also ripe to be able to bring. And then we have the fourth category, which is the, the new laws passed, like in California, you know, and in New York and other places that, where they're thumbing their nose at Bruin uh, and they're passing, you know, more more new kinds of laws that we didn't have to we didn't have to attack before. So we have four categories of, of, of we drop the suits into to attack right now. Uh, and, you know, of course, from our point of view, I guess some of the areas that, that are really ripe for us is the so-called assault mag assault weapon magazine and magazine ban cases. That, th th those are two areas. Another one of the 20, uh, 18 to 20 year old prohibitions on either being able to buy a gun or being able to, to, to carry one. Uh, those are a whole nother area of categories we're taking a look at. And then, of course, we, the sensitive places. There were some places that had sensitive places before that weren't going to stick. But now all the new sensitive places laws is, is another key area that we're going after. One of the examples I'd love to give is in New York City, they've made like the whole Times Square area. Uh, and we don't really know what's defined in the Times Square area. We know <laughs> going to be where the boundary is. Uh, but we have like people who have had permit, premises permits to have a gun in their, in their business, maybe because they're a jewelry store and they want to protect the, the, the jewelry, you know, high value in, in an area with a lot of foot traffic. Uh, now they've been getting letters from the city of New York saying, OK, you, you had a permit in the premises, but now because you're in this sensitive places area, you have to turn in your guns and get them out of your gun store so you can bring them into the police department. You can uh, you bring them to an FFL and get rid of them, but you got to prove to us that you no longer have the gun in the premises because we've revoked your permit. 
So it, what, here we have people who had permits, now they're yeah. losing them. Uh, and that wasn't what the Bruins decision was supposed to render. Right. This was. The, I love the fact that they call this the Concealed Carry Improvement Act in New York because it has made things so much worse. Um, you know, there was another case that was filed, not an SAF case, but the uh, the Jewish Gun Club of New York filed suit this week because, again, one of their uh, members had a, a a premises permit he could carry in the synagogue in Brooklyn, but now he can't. Uh, because houses of worship are just, you know, blanket banned. And and so, you know, you, you're right. People who this isn't just about stopping people from getting a license and stopping, you know, people from uh, exercising their right to carry going forward. This is going back and saying, hey, this right that you were exercising, we're taking it away from you. You've done nothing wrong. But now we we, we just don't consider it to be a right. I, I'm curious as well about uh, and I don't want you to tip your hand. So feel free to say uh, no, 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 uh, no, no, no answer to this one. But um one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that the Second Amendment, you know, just as Thomas said, it's not a second class right. And yet it is still, to the best of my knowledge, the only right that, in essence, stops at the state border. Um, if I, as a Virginian, want to carry in California, if I go visit friends in California, there's no way for me to legally exercise my right to carry. California doesn't issue non-resident permits. They don't, uh, you know, recognize permits from any other state. Uh, New York has some similar screwy laws. Like if you're a non-resident, the only way you can get a New York carry permit is if you, uh, if if New York is your primary workplace, uh, your primary place of doing business. How ripe do you think a challenge to those types of provisions and 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 really establishing the right to carry in all 50 states? Um, how ripe is that for uh, for judicial review? Well, post Bruin, it's more ripe than it was pre Bruin. But there's some other cases I think we have to get through the courts first to build a little bit more of a platform to really be able to have a strong case. Uh, philosophically, I totally agree with you. Uh, we're, you know, the, you should be able to have that right. Uh, our problem is there's some areas of law that aren't involving firearms that talk about states being able to regulate and control things when, from people coming from other states. And a lot of people don't realize it, but like, for example, like your driver's license is good in all 50 states. But that wasn't done by federal legislation. That was done by state compacts where all the states got together and signed a compact to allow that to happen. So there's a lot of other case law we got to consider that could you know, upset our apple cart or in some ways maybe even help us uh, with a suit like that. But we're, but we're still working on putting – there's a lot of areas now at Post Bruin where we need a lot more research done, areas we haven't really explored as heavily as we need to before we file some of these suits. Mm -hmm. So we're not only filing suits, but we're working on a lot of legal research right now. You know, and that's really important because, again, one bad case can set our cause back. And this is something that I know you've talked about before, the importance of bringing the right cases forward uh, so that you don't just throw everything at the kitchen, you know, everything but the kitchen sink of the wall and see what sticks. That's not a great way of defending our right to keep and bear arms. Right. We try at Second Man Foundation to one file very narrow suits, not kitchen sink suits, so to speak, so to speak. Whereby, you know, we, we, we limit what we're challenging in that suit. We might go back with a second or third suit to expand it, but we try to keep it limited and not throw too much at a judge. Because if you do, one, they don't appreciate it. And two, if they find any way at all to rule against you on one point you're bringing up, they can expand it to the, your whole suit. So we're a little careful that way. But also with the risk that we all have no matter what is if you get, you know, a very anti-gun judge, uh, they'll find any kind of excuse they can to try to rule against you. Or you know, like in the Ninth Circuit, where we win a lot of times at trial court, we win a lot of times at appeals court, and then in bank the whole circuit overturns it. 
and the Supreme Court, again, you know, it's hard to get a case before the Supreme Court. I mean, there are tens of thousands of people who petition the court every year to get a, get a case heard, and way, 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 way less than 1% ever get heard. So it, it, it's really difficult, and so we've got to be a little careful. But likewise, we can't let the other side get away with things. You know, when they when they trample on our rights, we want our damn court. That's right. Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, speaking of that fight, the Journal of uh, Philanthropy has a, a big piece on the state of the gun control movement this week. And I thought it was fascinating. They estimate that the gun control lobby is bringing in about uh, or spending about $160 million every year. Um, that is a staggering amount of, of cash that is flowing uh, in objection to our Second Amendment rights. How important is it, and what are you seeing right now among the grassroots in terms of involvement and engagement within the Second Amendment uh, Foundation? You mentioned the attendance at Gun Rights Policy Conference, but with SAF more broadly, are, are you still seeing new members coming in, and, and what can gun owners do to level that playing field? We don't have a lot of deep-pocketed billionaires who are you know, funding our movement. Um, what can we do to ensure that that groups like SAF have the resources and the ability to, to fight these laws. Well, we are seeing, you know, gains and, and new, new supporters coming in uh, at, at higher numbers than before. There's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, the Biden administration, especially Biden coming out talking about banning semi-automatic rifles and nine millimeter handguns, has got a lot more people engaged and active with this. And with the Democrats in control, you know, anti-gun Democrats in control of the House and the Senate, along with the White House, uh, you know, it's been a year that, that a lot of gun owners are saying, hey, I got to come out and do something. But you're right. We don't have those billionaires. We don't have that kind of money. You know, when the Second Amendment Foundation goes out to raise money, we have to go out and, you know, and, and reach, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and get ten and fifteen dollar, twenty five dollar donations. And it takes time and it costs money to do that. Uh, the anti-gunners just go to like a Michael Bloomberg or George Soros and his, you know, six figure, you know, check that gets written to them with no cost of fundraising and, and no time wasted, so they can spend the time on the mission of of attacking us. And, and it's it's difficult. And the media, you know, by, by and large, you've got, you know, uh, uh, a, a legacy media that really is extremely anti-gun rights and, and supports them with millions of dollars which of free advertising that isn't even counted in the, you know, the Journal of Philanthropy's numbers of that 160 million. Right. You can add that on to it. Um, and, and, you know, and that gets kind of tough, too. One advantage we have are boots on the ground. We have a, a significant number of you know, gun owners that are out there that, that get engaged and get active. And my message right now is, is you know, we're very close to the midterm election. You know, it's, you know, days away, so to speak. Uh, we have to get out there and work on behalf of candidates, do phone banking, you know, call up you know, you know, candidates in your area and say, how can I help? Uh, you know, knocking on doors, leaving literature in people's houses. It's really extremely important right now for the next, you know, 30 some odd days concentrate on the midterm elections more than anything because the other side is pouring in millions of dollars against our rights. That's right. Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, all right. Last question for you. You know, I think the Bruin decision was uh, obviously a, a, a big victory for uh, for gun owners and for Second Amendment supporters. But as we've talked about over the last few minutes, the, the blue state uh, anti-gun Democrats have um, been very resistant to, to even acknowledging uh, the Bruin decision. What do you say to gun owners who feel frustrated right now, who feel like things haven't changed as much as they expected they would uh, post-Bruin? And in some cases, maybe things have even gotten worse. Uh, it, do, are you still optimistic? Do you believe that, uh, that this you know, tipper tantrum we're seeing from the left here is ultimately going to be short-lived, legally speaking? 
Well, let me say I definitely am. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic. And you have to realize we've already had some key victories in court post-Bruin. You've had cases like in West Virginia with homemade firearms where, you know, uh, the courts overturned laws there. You've had cases in Texas where 18 to 20 year old, you know, has been reenfranchised. We've had some magazine assault and ban cases that we've won. I mean, the bottom line is we've already made some progress post-Bruin. And likewise, a lot of these so-called heavy blue anti-gun states, uh, some of them have rolled some things back. You know, Maryland is not enforcing some of the, the provisions in their, you know, uh, carry laws that were discriminatory against gun owners being able to get permits. Uh, we, we've had this in other places as well. So while you have some states like, you know, New York and particularly California and New Jersey's tried but hasn't quite gone as far as New York or California. Uh, I mean, we, we, our pushback because of Bruin has been very strong so far and we're going to see a whole lot more. Uh, you know, it, it's it's new case law. The courts have to apply it. We've actually seen some Obama appointed judges and Biden appointed judges ruling in our favor now because they don't really have a choice. So we're making a little progress, but it's going to be you know, it's going to take some time. It's again only been three months. Right. Absolutely. Well, listen, Alan, again, I, I cannot thank you enough for taking a couple of minutes out of your day. I know that uh, you just got back from GRPC and uh Maybe even a little jet lag. I'm sure you could use some uh, rest and recovery, but uh, you yeah. got like an hour of that, right? Maybe maybe an hour to relax and, and rest up because we got to get right back to work. But uh, again, I cannot thank you enough for being here. Can't thank you enough for everything you do. And uh, I really look forward to having another conversation with you again very soon. Well, Cam, it's always great to be with you and, and, and your and your listeners and viewers. A lot of people at Gun Rights Policy Conference wanted to, wanted to come meet you. Uh, you know, they they watch they watch you on 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 camera. Uh, they read your your stories. There are a lot of people that were looking for you, so you missed a lot of your 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 friends and uh, uh, followers. Well, like I said, I was so sad I couldn't be there this year, but I promise, 2023, I, I I'm there unless there's you know unless I'm in the hospital or somebody I love's in the hospital. That's where I'm going to be. Um, do you know where next year's gun rights policy conference is going to take place? Not yet, uh, but we're working on it. Uh, okay. You know, we, we almost this year's gun rights policy conference was almost in Tampa, and if we had it in Tampa with the hurricane, we, it wouldn't have come off. Oh so yeah. We're, we're, we're you know we would like to go back to Florida, but right now we're a little bit hurricane shy. We're not sure where it's going to be yet. It, it's a good chance it might be in Phoenix. It might be in Chicago. In Chicago. Oh. Now, see, that was of a whole other uh, line of question, but I want to leave that for our next conversation. But uh, I think it would be really fun to bring a major Second Amendment conference to one of the most anti-gun cities in the country. So I'm going to go ahead and cast my vote for Chicago next year, Alan. Yeah, I like expanding the playing field, not shrinking it. Right. So I love taking it to, the, to our opponents. I like that idea. Alan Gottlieb, the founder, executive vice president of the Second Amendment Foundation. Thanks again for being a part of today's Gamma Company. I appreciate Alan joining us on the program. Looking forward to having another conversation with him very soon. Uh, now, though, let's turn our attention to today's Armed Citizen story, our good deed of the day. And our recidivist report will start there with a story out of Savannah, Georgia, where a man indicted for murder, uh, a murder that took place back in May, was uh, on probation thanks to a plea deal for a previous shooting. Yeah, that's right. 26-year-old Rashad Williams now faces nine felony charges, including malice murder, in connection with a shooting back on May the 8th. The Savannah Police Department says that uh, Rashad Williams was in his car when an argument uh, began around 2.30 that morning. Police say that Williams then shot and killed 32-year-old Ashton Gibbs and a uh, 30-year-old woman uh, who ended up surviving. Williams apparently uh, fled the area. He was uh, tracked down by U.S. Marshals in Ohio. And WTOC reported that Williams was on probation 
back in May of this year for another shooting that happened five years ago, back in 2018. Uh, in that case, it was August 8th, 2018. Williams got into an argument with a woman. He then allegedly got a gun from his car, made threats, and then shot at two witnesses. One of them was uh, grazed by a bullet, but neither of the uh, victims were seriously injured. The uh, Chatham County DA's office uh, ended up negotiating a plea with Williams. He ended up pleading guilty to aggravated assault in exchange for a 15-year sentence, but 11 of those were on probation. And he also received first-time offender status, which meant that if he finished his probation, the felony charge would be wiped from his record. It's unclear whether or not Williams ever did any prison time or if that was just sort of held over his head in case of a probation violation. The prosecutor said at the time that Williams was getting, quote, a tremendous deal and being able to walk away from this, having shot at multiple people. So it sounds like prison was... Uh, sort of, again, held out over his head, but not something he actually had to do. Uh, the judge who approved the plea deal told Williams that he was, quote, lucky he didn't kill someone. Yeah, he was lucky to get the sweetheart deal as well. And here we are five years later, and Williams is now accused of murder. Which kind of makes you wonder if the uh, Chatham County DA's office has any comment about that uh, that deal that they gave him just five years ago. That, quote, tremendous deal, allowing him to walk away having shot at multiple people. Kind of makes you wonder, why is the DA's office offering these tremendous deals that allow violent individuals to walk away after having shot at people? A question maybe the residents of Chatham County would like to ask the DA. Today's Armed Citizen story from Oklahoma, where uh, police in Tulsa say a woman shot her accused rapist after he broke into her home uh, over the weekend. Uh, officers were called out to the scene of a shooting in Northeast Tulsa Sunday afternoon, uh, about uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, when they got there, uh, they saw a gentleman identified as Wilfredo Gomez, who had been uh, shot in the foot. He was uh, taken to a local hospital. Uh, while police were investigating, the woman in question called police and reported that she had been raped before shooting Wilfredo Gomez. Police say the woman said that Gomez came to her house, forced his way through the door, pushed her to a bedroom, and sexually assaulted and raped her. She was unable to retrieve a firearm. She shot several times, uh, hitting him once in the foot after the attack. The woman had actually taken out an order of protection against Gomez previously. And again, these orders of protections are, are not suits of armor. They are pieces of paper uh, that offer no protection whatsoever if the uh, individual in question decides to disregard it. Uh, Gomez was arrested, taken to Tulsa County Jail. He's now facing charges of rape by force or fear after a former conviction of a felony, as well as violation of a protective order. Uh, the woman who was sexually assaulted in her own home and then uh, shot Gomez is not facing any charges at this point in time. Police do believe that she was acting in self-defense. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, where a, a police officer was shot by an armed suspect and a, a teenager who was nearby uh, was able to uh, help save his life. Yeah, this is a, an incredible story. Um, the officer was trying to take into custody a, a 65-year-old man who ended up being killed in the crossfire. He had uh, was shot by police as he uh, fired at them. Uh, but one of the officers in question was wounded. Uh, Ava Donegan, who is a, a student at Oak Park High School, said she and her boyfriend had gone to Excelsior Springs just to hang out. Uh, and they were there when this shooting started. She said, I'd never heard gunshots so up close. I'd never even been near a, a cop when he drew his gun in general. Um, the officer who had been shot asked her to help him apply a tourniquet. 
Uh, and thankfully, Ava Dunnigan had some experience with this. Her father is a trauma nurse at University Health in Kansas City, Missouri. And Donegan says she carries a tourniquet in her car on a regular basis. The one that she used to help the officer belonged to him. Uh, but she said, I was putting the tourniquet over his arm. He was telling me it was, it was numb. She said, I could tell it was numb because his arm was completely limp. He's a pretty tall guy and his hand was pretty wide. So I was struggling over his limp hand. She ultimately got the tourniquet in place, was able to stop the bleed. The officer is expected to recover. Her dad says, uh, quote, I think it was exceptional that she was able to get out and have the wherewithal to get out and help. Just to hear my daughter step up to the plate and help somebody in need, I was ecstatic, uh, as he should be. Uh, so, again, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help an officer in need. Uh, Ava Donegan there in Missouri, we thank you for your very, very good deed. Now, that is unfortunately all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company, but I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. We'll be back tomorrow with even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information that you need to know about. But of course, check out BearingArms.com throughout the day. We are constantly updating the website uh, with new information. As I said before, it's a supercharged time for the Second Amendment. So there's a lot to keep track of, and uh, we want to be your number one resource for that. If you like what you see, you can always become a VIP subscriber as well. All you have to do, go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else as a show of support. And thanks for your support. News stories, analysis, stuff you won't find anywhere else. Because, again, your support really does matter, and it does make a difference. We'll see you back here tomorrow. But until then, be well, be safe, and be free.